All right, we're going to be in Luke 3, if you turn there uh, with me. We're going to, uh, we've been in Luke the last couple of weeks. We're going to start back in Mark in the new year, but we're going to have one more in Luke, Luke 3. Hope you've had a Merry Christmas. See, some of you have had family uh, here with you, even today. A lot of my family came in um, last night from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, there's one problem with that. Uh, we li- used to live in Mississippi for about six years, so every time they'd come in, there's like nothing to do. So we always knew it was all about us. They came in for us, but everything has changed, <laughs> right? Like we're in competition with with the mouse now and the sun. So um, let me give you a little context before I read, though. I'm probably one page of your Bible here in um, in Luke. He's leapfrogged from when Jesus was a baby to six, uh, six weeks old, to a short story of when he was 12, and now to when he's 30 years old or so. And Jesus' cousin, John, uh, a few months older than him, is coming to, to what we hear is to prepare the way for the coming Messiah, to prepare the way for his cousin. The first two verses, um, they contain a lot of words that are hard to pronounce, out of practice um, a lot. Um, but let me just tell you real quick what, what's going on. It's basically giving, uh, it's, it's, it's setting the context where Luke is saying this really happened. He's telling Theophilus uh, that he's writing the letter to, um, this is exactly when it happened. It's almost like me saying in the sixth year of the presidency of President Obama and um, in the second term of the governor of Florida, Rick Scott, uh, Michael came to UPC and preached. That's kind of what's going on. So you'll see this, is, this happened at exact time and place in history. So let's read Luke 3, 1 through 18. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Triconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah and the wilderness. And he went into all the region of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's written in the book of, of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warn you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to make these, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, 
and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them and answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Let's pray once more. God, we thank you that you have a passion and zeal for your own glory and that it is unto our good and satisfaction and happiness in life that you would reveal your glory to us. And we thank you that your word, you promise, comes to us just like rain comes and snow. It waters the fields and produces fruit. We pray, Lord, that your word would do the same thing this morning. Do this through the power of your Holy Spirit. For your glory in Jesus' name, amen. It is a time of year where um, people are thinking about change in their lives. Uh, to do that, we often make resolutions, right? Maybe you've made some already. If not, um, I grabbed a few off the internet that you might could borrow for yourselves. So here's a few you might uh, consider. Uh, resolve to spend less than $1,500 on coffee at Starbucks this year. That's a good one. Uh, resolve to save some money for a rainy day so I can do some shopping online. I resolve to stop put, putting butter on my donuts. Resolve to stop procrastinating. And that one I might start in February. I resolve to finish a whole tube of chapstick. Has anybody done that? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Almost impossible. Uh, these are for young people. Um, to stop sending texts to people in the same room as I am in. <laughs> Resolve to walk somewhere without using, looking, or, or even touching my phone. <laughs> Lastly, resolve to quit making those same excuses why I don't follow through with my resolutions. Resolve to make some new excuses instead. <laughs> well, resolutions are one way that we, um, we make attempts to change some some things in our lives, some areas in our lives that need change. And a very, very few of us live without seeing some of these areas that, that need change. And most of them, they, they go deeper than changing some mere habits of food and exercise. Whether you're a Christian or not this morning, um, some of you really have a, a desire to see change in your character. See New peace and joy come into your life. Or maybe more patience and gentleness and love at home. Or your relationships towards others. Some might feel a need to start living with more purpose in the new year. More conviction. Whatever it be, all of us are looking for change. Thousands here um, were looking for change. They came out to this strange man wearing camel hair out in the desert near the Jordan and Matthew and Mark say that, that all of Judea and Jerusalem were coming out. This means literally thousands were coming out to this, this man. Pretty incredible, isn't it? I mean, they're walking a long distance. There's no like way to gather people at the time. There's no 
way to put on Facebook, uh, baptism at the Jordan, see you there. Uh, there's no Twitter, you know, you could put a hashtag, Preacher John. Um, why were so many walking out to this, this man? In their hearts, they were looking for change. John, though, did not lead them to look for or trust in just mere outward resolutions. He preached that for change to happen, they need to live lives of repentance. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Live lives of repentance. And we want to see three things. The need to repent, the power to repent, and the result of living a life of repentance. So let's look first at our need to repent. So here we have thousands have gathered here with John. And, and uh, you can almost feel here that John, you know, he's starting his sermon. He quiets the crowds and uh, he begins, good morning, everybody. Happy that you're here. In verse 7, we kind of have a, a look at his introduction. He begins, you brood of vipers. Wow. Uh, literally, it means you, you offspring of poisonous snakes. For good Jews who knew their Old Testament, in Genesis 3, they, uh, they knew what the snake represented. John began by basically calling them sons and daughters of Satan. Quite an interesting sermon introduction, right? John would not have been a good, uh, popular American preacher. It's not a very seeker-friendly service, you might say. He's not following the church rules of growing a megachurch, and yet a lot of people are there. What's going on? See, for over 400 years, God had been silent without revealing himself and speaking to his people. And verse 2 says that the word of God had come to John. And if you know your Old Testament, true prophets were not those to just go out and tickle ears and please men. They were committed to speaking only what God had told them to say. And what God was saying to these people is that your lives are messed up and you have real need of change. You, you need to repent. Verse 4 says that, that he knew that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He knew that he was the voice crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for his cousin, who is the Messiah, Jesus. And the result would be of this coming king, every valley would be filled, every mountain and hill laid low, the crooked and straight, uh, crooked made straight, the rough places made smooth. What's going on? See, back in that time, uh, there weren't major construction companies going around paving roads. Roads were basically made, as people walked around, uh, it, they wore down paths. So they, they made the roads, which meant the roads were filled with, they were rough, they were filled with boulders, they, they went up steep inclines and down valleys. And the language here is that of a coming king. When a king would come with his entourage and chariots, the roads need to be worked on. Valleys need to be filled in and crooked places need to be made straight. Rough boulders need to be removed. It's a language of preparing for a king. If there's a... So here John is saying to mostly the religious Jewish crowd in a not so southern indirect way, he says all of you have areas that need to change to prepare for this coming king. This is true of us, as true for us now as it is for them, as it was for them then. Whether you're religious or not, think about it. All of us have certain high areas in our 
lives that need to be brought low. You know what I'm saying? You know, times where you just have subtle thoughts that you're, you just think something crosses your mind, you're just, you feel better than somebody else. Uh, maybe a thankfulness that you aren't like somebody else who's going through a hard time. A subtle feeling of superiority, maybe because of your education or your gifts or your employment. Maybe you even use your position or your influence or power to elevate yourself above others. We all have areas, high areas that need to be brought low. A lot of us have low areas that need to be brought high, though. Amazingly, for some of us, our pride doesn't come out as a feeling of superiority, but actually of inferiority. You're always feeling like you don't add up, like you're rejected, unlovable, deserving of others' pity. This is why so many resolutions for both of those cases are made for about our body image, areas that need to be lifted up, crooked areas that need to be straightened. There's crooked areas of gossip, subtle ways that we share a story uh, that isn't beneficial about someone else, but we say it in order to make ourselves look good, like we're in the know. There's crooked Ways of embellishing our own story to be liked by somebody else, right? Subtle ways you stretch the story. Crooked thoughts of lust and, and, and jealousy that need to be straightened. There's rough areas that need to be smooth. You might be very religious, like these Jews, but yet, yet your language at home is very harsh. Or maybe you're hanging on to bitterness against somebody. Maybe there's a boulder-like addiction in your life that no one knows about, or, or simply you're entertaining immoral thoughts, and it just they need to be cleared out for the king to really come into your life. John makes clear that these aren't simply social flaws that need to be tweaked, but they're, they're moral failures. He says it's sin against God, your holy God, and it requires repentance. Your only hope of change, he says in verse 8, is not a self-help book or some surface New Year resolutions. Your only hope is to repent. Repent, in context, it means a hatred of and a turning from any area of your life that you are trusting in or that you love more than this coming king. You love more than Jesus. Verse 8 says that John reveals why many, though, don't see their need for for repentance. He says, some were trusting in their religious pedigree. They thought, God loves me because I'm a Jew and Abraham is my father. I'm righteous because I'm circumcised and I keep the law. I'm a good person. And today, people think that same very thing. Maybe you think the same thing. God loves me because I prayed a prayer when I was younger. Because I've been in church all my life. Uh, I'm feeling pretty righteous because I avoid all the outward things. How the outward sins. Religion can become just as much of a false savior as money, sex, or power. There are so many who go through life and never see or really feel their need to really change though. And ever really repent. See, some live life as if everyone else around them is the reason for their issues. Somebody else around you is the reason for your anger. They're the ones who make it happen. The reason for your feelings of rejection, your disappointment or discontentment in life. 
For some, it's relying on your religious performance that actually keeps you from repenting. And for others, it might be buying into the cultural lie that there's no authority over you. And that you have the right to define your own standards of morality. To tell you to change would be intolerant or judgmental. And what John was saying to them now, and is saying to us now, if we are going to see real change in our lives, we need to first see that we all have deep-rooted areas that need change and require repentance. Areas that are too high, too low, that are crooked and are rough. So if you see your need to repent, you probably long for the power to repent. So let's look at the, the power to repent. Where do we get the power to really change in some of these areas? These areas are too high or too low. There's an old Mad TV skit. You may have seen it. It's with uh, Bob Newhart acting as a counselor or a therapist. Uh, he comes to this therapy. Uh, a woman comes to this therapy session with him, and, and she begins by describing her claustrophobia. Uh, she has a fear of being buried in a box. Uh, she's struggling with... Uh, uh, a fear and anxiety of small spaces, and Bob listens to her as a good counselor would, and she gets done. She starts to listen to him, and he says, I have two words for you. She said, two words, only two words? And uh, she said, shall I, shall I write them down? He's like, no, they're just two words. You could probably remember two words. Said, okay, I'm ready, you know? She you know, buckles her seatbelt, and he, he says, stop it. She kind of looks confused. He's like, just stop it. Stop, stop doing that. Uh, she, she, anything else I need to help you with? She says, well, I do have an eating disorder. Well, stop that. Don't do that anymore. Okay. Um, she goes on to mention her destructive relationships with men and fear of driving sometimes. Each time he responds. Stop that. Don't, don't do that. It's a funny skit. I'm probably not too bad of a representation of some of the therapy, the behavioral uh, modification therapy out there. But sadly, it's how many of us Christians and non-Christians think of how God deals with your areas of sin and moral failure. Just stop it. Just Just repent and go stop doing that. When the truth is, we can't stop it. We're not able to just say no. Our indwelling sin, the nature of our indwelling sin, prevents us from just getting rid of of deep-rooted areas of self-worth that I want to elevate myself above somebody else. Our deep-rooted areas of self-depreciation where you feel unworthy, or lust of the flesh, or reliance and trusting and hoping you'll get to heaven because you're a good person. You just can't stop it. If you think that identifying your areas of sin and turning from them are all up to you and all about you, then you will leave here depressed, hurting, angry, or maybe just disconnected from everything that we're talking about this morning. And everything that's in this text. The good news, though, if you will hear it, is that 
God doesn't require us to do anything that he will not empower us, give us the power to actually do. And so we see verse 18 actually says that John came and he preached good news to the people. That's kind of strange, isn't it? Doesn't sound like very good news, does it? Good news. You're a son of Satan uh, who needs to flee from the wrath of God. Have a great weekend. Uh, I mean, imagine if your neighbor called and said, you answer, and he said something like, hey, neighbor, hey, man, how you, how you doing? Pretty good, what's up? Look, um, I've got some really good news for you. Really? What? Yeah, see, your house is on fire. What? That, that's good news? Doesn't sound like good news, but now imagine that he just saw the smoke, and he calls, the fire had just begun, and because he called, you're able to get home and put out the fire and save your house. That would be good news. And John has pointed out the bad news so that, he says, that we might escape the unquenchable fire of God's wrath. And he communicates that God is not just saying stop it in order to repent. He's saying God will give you the power to repent. And I want to show you just three ways that he gives power. He empowers you to do what he requires to repent. Number one. Is from, comes from verse 7. Look at verse 7. He says, Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who, who warned you to repent? Who warned you to come here? I, I'd love to know if John answered his own question. Well, who, who did warn you, John? Or, or John, who, who do you think warned them? You know what I mean? This is, this is pretty incredible what's going on. It's pretty supernatural. Thousands have gone this far out. I mean, can you imagine, like, if you're, if you're at home and... Um, <coughs> You know, you're, um, you're in Jerusalem and, you know, uh, you get home and you're, hey, honey, I'm home. And, um, hey, what are, you, what are you thinking about doing today? Honey, you know what I think would be a blast? Is if we gathered our four small children and walked 15 miles out to hear a preacher. He's in the wilderness. And I think he's going to tell us to repent. That sounds awesome. I'm in. You know, I mean, thousands have done this. What? Why? The Bible says that they didn't conjure up this need for repentance. God led them into the desert to repent. And here's how you see this. Who warned you? God warned you. From verses like this, Romans 2.4 says that it's the kindness of God that leads you into repentance. 2 Timothy 2.25 says that God grants you repentance. It actually means he gives you, he produces it. Acts 11 said that God granted Gentiles repentance as a gift. It's a season we know all about gifts, right? Any of you give gifts to your children that you got really excited about? We gave a gift of a, of a princess power wheels to our four-year-old daughter, Avery. And we were so excited. I think we were more excited to give it to her than get it because we just knew she was going to uh, love it. Some are so hesitant to be honest about your sin before God and confess and repent because you do not think of God like this as, as, giving, as willing to give such a gift. You think of God as almost like a mad father, so disappointed in you, so full of regret about the way you've lived. But he's, the Bible says that God is not like this. He loves and is even excited 
to grant you this gift of repentance, ability to turn from your sin. So if you feel that you can't just conjure it up, you just can't, you just can't stop it, whatever's going on in your life, will you hear this? You can ask God, simply ask God for this gift of repentance even today. That's number one. God grants, gives repentance. Number two, that we see that God, um, uh, God's empowering grace through what John calls a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. See, baptism was used just um, for the Gentiles up to this point. And now Jews were coming as well. Uh, before then, if a pagan wanted to come into Judaism or uh, uh, into Israel, that they had to be baptized and be circumcised as a, <clears throat> as a symbol that you're, you were now cleansed and washed. Now Jews were coming to receive this sign. Now some of us struggle with repentance because we tend to think that repentance uh, actually makes us worthy and earns our forgiveness. That um, if I repent enough, or if my repentance is sincere enough, then God will forgive me of my sins. But um, that probably actually discourages you from coming honestly before God and would not be good news at all. It would actually be like saying, uh, John would be saying, um, good news, if you stop sinning, then you can come and receive forgiveness of your sins. That, that, that's not, that didn't make any sense. Imagine if you come home from work and, and um, you, you went and worked out and you come home all sweaty and, um, and your wife says, hey, honey, remember, we have date night tonight. You're like, schnooky or whatever you call your wife. I would not forget that. <laughs> remember the whole day. She's like, okay, well, um, you better go ahead and clean yourself up for a date night. And then you might want to also take a, take a shower to get clean. Okay, what? I didn't make any sense. Pookie, whatever. You don't take a shower to get clean. You you take a shower to get clean. You don't clean yourself before you get in the shower. See, John says in verse 15 through 17, he says, I'm preparing the way for someone who came for this very reason, to make you clean. Don't try to clean yourself up before you receive the king who came to clean you. Come and be cleansed. The whole reason Jesus came was because we were dirty in our sins and we could have never cleansed, cleaned ourselves up. Because of our sins, we all deserve to be burned. We're like the chaff, deserve, deserving to be burned before holy wrath of God and unquenchable fire. Man, we need to realize that. But if we realize that, it brings us to humble ourselves before a king who humbled himself upon a cross he was made dirty, the fullness of your and my sin. He became as if he was high with our pride, as if he was low with our rejection, crooked as a gossiper. And then the one who was superiorly, superiorly, whatever you say, high, the one who was all glorious became so low, humbled himself even to receiving the un, the rejection of his father. He became as if he was unloved. But then when he rose from the dead, he said, all who come and trust, receive this king, receive baptism, 
is a sign that your sins are forgiven. You are cleansed. And you can, your sins are dealt with. So you don't repent in order to be cleansed. And that's empowering for us to repent. The third way, and lastly, we see God's empowering grace by the Holy Spirit he gives us. In short, this is, it's just really good news. You know, not, you and I don't really change from just single moments, one moment of great, you know, commitment or resolve to change, right? It's, change actually happens in thousands of little moments of the mundane throughout your life. In verse 16, we see that all Christians, Jesus came that all Christians might receive the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit might be poured out so that we might receive powerful grace as the Holy Spirit lives with us in the thousands of mundane little moments in our lives. You know what I'm talking about? The the mundane moments, daily moments of impatience with the kids or harshness with our spouse or arrogance at the workplace, selfishness. The Holy Spirit works as like a generator that's, that's with us to empower us, give grace in that moment for all those little moments so that we can repent and change. So we have seen our need for change. We've seen the power to repent. Lastly, just real briefly, the result of repentance. I want you to see how attractive, if repentance, a life of repentance comes in your life, how attractive this really is. We see this really clearly in the text. But first of all, I want to just see how supernatural this is if repentance comes in your life. And let me just phrase this question to you as we think about the, the, the result of repentance. How do, how do you react when somebody confronts you? How do you react when somebody accuses you of doing something wrong, like being harsh or unloving or angry? Uh, what do you do when someone criticizes you? If you're like me, there's like a, there's like an inner lawyer inside that rises to my defense and ready to, you know, to defend my and justify my actions. But if the good news of the gospel really gets us, we see a picture here of what happens. You see a picture of people starting to say, I get it. What shall I do? I want that more and more in my life. And then you see, you look at the crowds in verse 10 through 14, you see they started to get in the generosity of God towards them, the kindness of of God that led them to repentance to such a way that they started saying, if you really get this, you start to want to, when you walk by people without coats, you want to go home and grab. If you've got two coats, you want to give. You want to be that generous. It frees you to start releasing your things, not have such a tight grip on your stuff. When you get how this superior king gave up his high position to become low and serve, it causes people like tax collectors and soldiers who always use their high position to, to take from others, starts leaving them one to use their power and influence to give it away. And he says, be content with your wages, which is not an American value, right? But contentment means satisfaction. It means happiness. It means God loves, for when repentance comes in your life, to see you, it doesn't mean stop trying to succeed or, be, or, or, or make money. It means that when this king comes into your life, it means you, start, you stop looking for your happiness and satisfaction in that position at work, in that uh, promotion. You start finding a satisfaction and happiness and contentment with what you have. 
John himself might be the most beautiful picture of change. He's a prophet who has, for hundreds of years, he's the first prophet, and thousands are are following him on Twitter. I mean, all all over the place. He's popular. He's, uh, He's a picture of success and popularity. Yet he says here, he says, you know what? I'm not even worthy to untie the shoes of this king, which was the lowest position. I'm not even worthy to be a slave. You see how repentance had changed him? Brought the high places low? These are the results of living life of repentance. And more and more as it comes in your life, we will also find ourselves happy and satisfied regardless of our circumstances. A few months ago, all the Presbyterian PCA pastors gathered from a whole the whole central Florida region. And three pastors were asked if they could share some of their story of ministry and uh, in their lives. And Mike Osborne was <clears throat> one of those pastors. But another pastor in the area was asked to share some of his story. And um, with an opportunity to share his successes in front of 50 other pastors, uh, it's interesting, they shared a life-defining moment when his children confronted him. They said, said Dad, we love you. Um, but we don't like you very much as a pastor or a father. What was amazing to me as I sat there and heard this man honestly just confess this before everybody was how he, um, he just identified, it, identified areas where at that point he said, you know what, I need to repent. And he did this and he said, uh, it just changed my whole life in ministry. And he went on to share his perspective. But basically a life of repentance, beginning a life of repentance for him, changed everything, all his relationships. The result was not a man that was just lowly sitting there feeling all rejected or despondent. The picture was a man's man, a strong man who could admit his failure in front of everyone. Leo Tolstoy, the famous writer, said, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. And if we in this new year will resolve to live a life of daily and weekly repentance before our family and the people at work and those around us, especially in this church and our community, if we will ask the Holy Spirit to help us for daily grace that's needed, the power And we should expect the result to be inward and outward change that glorifies God over time. Let's pray. God, we just pray that you would do the supernatural work of revealing to us our need, areas of needed conviction of our sin that would lead us to actually a hatred and turning from it. And that you would empower us by your sweet and glorious grace, having been forgiven of our sins and empowered by the Holy Spirit, to really change in this new year. Unto the end that we are happy in your grace being on display and you being glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.